0: Hi everybody, my name is Andrew Wan. I'm a performing violinist, and you're listening to the Talking Blues Podcast.
1: Performing violinist. I mean, uh, that's, I'm curious as to why you describe yourself that way.
0: I can't really do anything else. <laughs> Uh, I play violin in a variety of settings and the one where most people will see me is on stage with the Montreal Symphony. I've been the concertmaster for, well, this is my 16th season, and so I guess I could have introduced myself as the concertmaster of the Montreal Symphony, but I wear a few other hats. Um, I'm in the new Orford String Quartet, I teach violin at McGill, I do some solo, some ad-hoc chamber music. Um, Yeah, I, I guess... I guess I could have said I'm an aspiring versatile violinist, but (laughs) only playing classical music. You hear me play a little bit of a tango or jazz, and then you quickly ask me to play classical again.
1: Oh, I doubt that very much.
0: (laughs) You started. Well, I do like dabbling, but there's no improv on my end.
1: You started really early. Like I, I, in fact, violin is your second instrument, if I'm not mistaken.
0: That's yeah. Uh, I rarely talk about this but I think the first lessons I had was on piano and it didn't last very long. Um, My older siblings played piano and for whatever reason my parents moved me to violin. I think my father always wanted to be a violinist and or loved the violin. And so after two kids who were quite uh, involved in piano and I probably didn't have that much natural talent with piano I started taking lessons at the age of four on on violin and I had the same uh, violin teacher in Edmonton for 12 years she uh, was the first woman to bring uh, the Suzuki method to North America wow. through Banff it was Yoko Oiki Wong and uh, the Banff Center brought her in and she brought this method over she worked directly with Mr. Suzuki and she established herself in edmonton so i took lessons with her for 12 years and i'm still very close with her
1: okay for those of us who are very ignorant because i've heard the suzuki method being mentioned many times but i couldn't tell you what it is is it something you can easily describe to me what the suzuki method is
0: you know there is Uh, like a huge industry and culture around it. Um, There are books that you can buy. There are classes that you can take, group classes. And there is like a codified uh, system. Um, But I think the spirit of it is that it's quite well regimented and that um, you really have to help the student develop hearing and listening in the beginning. And even before reading music, uh, just like there's a lot of playback and I think that's kind of the fundamental aspect to it. And uh, I, you should probably ask uh, a certified Suzuki teacher if they would describe it this way, but I've always kind of regarded it as such. Um, there was a lot of imitation growing up, you know, watching her play and then just trying to mimic her. And uh, my sense of pitch, which I thought for a long time was perfect pitch, meaning I could, you know, call out any... Uh, any tone and be able to name it. I thought I had that, but I, it turns out I just have very, very good relative pitch. I can hear all the pitches on the violin or piano or most orchestra instruments, but if a truck passes by and somebody asks me, oh, what's that note? I really have to think about it, so I guess it's not perfect. But I really do uh, owe my ability to kind of identify pitches and you know my sense of intonation probably to the Suzuki method, and that's uh, mostly due to the fact that there's a lot of listening involved.
1: Okay, so when you start at the age of four, and this is your dad saying you should play the violin, but at what point do you totally connect with the violin? Like how, at what point do you think, I love this? I probably went through moments
0: where I really enjoyed uh, playing the violin, Uh, but by and large, it was probably a struggle for my parents to get me to practice, you know, because It was less interesting for someone with such a short attention span (laughs) to to sit there and for the amount of work that's required to actually um, feel comfortable on the instrument, it takes a lot of mindful, logical practice and it's, there's no getting around it. All of the best violinists go through long extended periods of, you could probably call it mundane work, where you're just drilling something you know, coming up with solutions and that was very hard for me as a uh, rambunctious kid uh I'd much rather uh, watch tv or go play outside but then you know every year there was something called the juanis festival where like every you know aspiring violinist you know puts himself uh, himself or herself in a position to compare themselves to others and yeah it's a competitive environment and it wasn't that like i felt like i had to win because i certainly didn't all the time um and those were difficult moments but very important growing up it was more that i just didn't want to embarrass myself and i just wanted to sound good i didn't want to embarrass my mom and dad and didn't want to embarrass my teacher who was you know cared for her very much and i think it was uh youth orchestra uh edmonton youth orchestra you know going every saturday and then just finding peers that were like me, that were further along that path, who loved it more than I did and taught me things. And, you know, asked me if I had heard certain recordings and being introduced to the orchestral repertoire. Um, It was 12th grade where I realized, you know, I was in uh, high school and we had to talk about what we were going to do next. And the University of Alberta did like a symposium, you know, early registration for my high school. And I didn't know what I was going to choose. And then I thought about it. (laughs) I thought about it and I realized, well, all my really close friends that I kind of see eye to eye with outside of school are in youth orchestra. Now looking back, I realized it was that kind of ensemble playing and feeling like I was around like-minded people every Saturday um, that drove me into music. So that's kind of late. A lot of people who uh, call music their career, they, they... had a connection earlier mine came later and my serious serious uh, dedication devotion to the craft of playing the violin came in my uh university years where i really felt like i had to
1: play catch up i mean i read somewhere and i don't know if this is true that you weren't really sure that you wanted to be a full-time musician until you got into juilliard is that true
0: yeah It was probably around that time. I probably didn't think I could do it. Um, You know, I think the more I got interested in it and, you know, started becoming more critical, the the kind of uh, blind confidence that you might have when you're younger, when things are going your way, starts to dissipate when you're actually really listening to what you're doing. And then starting to compare yourself to other people who have just gotten there sooner and put in their, whatever, 10,000 hours of real serious work. And, uh, but when you start to see, when I started to see results and that was directly correlated to the time that I, I spent, you know, woodshedding, just practicing as much as I could and, and putting myself out there, then I realized, okay, you know, maybe there is a path forward. Maybe I do see myself in this world, you know, other than, um, being able to play the instrument, you want to see if you can exist in this type of social setting you know musicians as you know are like it is a job very much a job uh, for me uh, but at the same time it's also um, like a like a a social a social thing where you have to go around and play with different people all the time sometimes the very first time I meet somebody you know we do exchange pleasantries and then (laughs) we have to work together within minutes and play something that we might feel like we both have a deep connection to and then coming uh, to a compromise or having a dialogue where you might be at odds, but then you feel like, well, we have to present some kind of cohesive interpretation together. I think that's essential in our business to be able to make music and, you know, have a a rapport and a dynamic with just about anybody. And that took developing because, you know, boys. (laughs) Boys are kind of stubborn and, you know, especially kind of cocky boys who don't really know what they don't know. I had to learn to be flexible and malleable. Um, yeah, and it's it's humbling to to be surrounded by just great artists and realize what you don't know.
1: When you decided to be a musician, and I guess you never know what that means, but when you Enroll, when you applied for Juilliard and you did get in, at that point, I presume you thought my career path is as a musician.
0: For sure. Yeah, I I was doing everything I could at that point to try to make it work. It was, I wasn't sure where it would lead me. Everyone has aspirations. Um, I would say everyone has aspirations when they get to Juilliard to, to just... Play as really as well as you can, and you know it is by nature just like a very competitive place. <laughs> you know the stories that you hear about people putting razor blades in between keys uh, at the piano. I don't know if that's true. Maybe that's <laughs> like from a different era. But there is this old joke that they say um, at most music schools: if someone's missing from class and you see them on Monday, you'll say, "Oh, where were you?" And they'll say, "Oh, I had this gig playing. I don't know with the." let's say Baltimore Symphony or something like that. And then in other schools, they'll say, oh, how did it go? But then the joke is at Juilliard, you'll say, oh, you played with the Baltimore Symphony? How did you get that gig? (laughs) So it has this uh, reputation of being this way. But in fact, I found it quite comfortable because I was there for so many years. I had a a peer group and I really hit it off with my teachers. Uh, My private instructors were... Uh, mentors, but also became friends of mine, and they helped shield me from making too many mistakes. Yeah, I, I felt like I had the room to to grow and to uh, experiment and to fail while knowing that I had a safety net. It wasn't like I only had two years there. I had three degrees there, so I just, it felt like coming back in September for the next degree, you know, just the next logical step, which is good and bad thing. I probably could have expanded my horizons and tried out a different school or a different um, city. But um, on the plus side, I felt more and more comfortable. And, you know, I think as with anything, you know, there's the task that you have to do and, you know, you have to do all the steps to, to make sure you can complete that task. But then there's also confidence. Like if you don't have confidence, then push comes to shove, that thing might not happen when you have to deliver. And I think uh, having people that were there and patient with me and that were um, just able to to show me the way without making me feel like I was making a huge misstep, that helped me gain confidence. And that actually is very similar to my path in the Montreal Symphony when I first got my job right out of school or I was actually still in school for the last two years and then I started the job um, I didn't realize but I didn't know and I think people were just happy to see that I was willing to grow into the role I think it would be uh, a big mistake to go into this role thinking oh I know everything I know everything and everyone should listen to me which is kind of the way the job sometimes can be Um, But uh, the way it worked out for me when I first joined the orchestra, looking back, I realize uh, the conductor who hired me, uh, Kent Nagano, and then my section gave me a lot of room. You know, no one was jumping at me if I made mistakes, you know. And if I was making mistakes, I would slowly realize them over time. took me some time, but, you know, I'm I'm still realizing
1: them. (laughs) I wonder if you said you came to this you, your decision to become a musician came later in life. what what else would you have done if you didn't pursue music? Was there any other alternative?
0: There was a time where I really uh, enjoyed drawing uh, for a while. I was telling everybody uh, that I liked architecture. Um I did a school project where I interviewed a family friend, and I got really. Uh, interested in what he was doing. He was in uh, commercial and uh, residential architecture, and I thought that was just a beautiful craft. Um, What else? I mean, now I really enjoy teaching, Uh, so I can imagine if my life wasn't centered around playing all the time, that I would uh, continue to teach, but more full-time. There was a time when I was at Juilliard where I was teaching... um, as an assistant to the full faculty member uh, ear training, just like solfege. And I really liked getting up there and, you know, holding court, you know, talking, making jokes. Uh, So I I really do enjoy teaching. And I would say now probably I've lost that interest in architecture, even though I do love beautiful buildings.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, so you go to Juilliard, um, I'm curious as to what you hoped to be when you got out of Juilliard. Is it? I get the impression that you were pursuing a career of a soloist. Is that correct?
0: Um, I didn't know what was possible. Of course, like I, I did competitions where I put myself out there for solo and sometimes it went very well, sometimes it didn't. Um, I had a very serious piano trio uh, with a pianist who's quite well-known now. He His name is uh, Julio Elizalde. He's from the Bay Area, and he uh, runs a festival uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, teaches at San Francisco Conservatory, and he um, works with Ray Chen, a very famous violinist, and Sarah Chang a lot. And he uh, was much more developed when it came to chamber music than I did, but we hit it off at a summer music festival, and then he came to Juilliard, and we found uh, is this Israeli cellist, his name is Gal Niska, who's now in the Israel Philharmonic. And we were best friends and did everything together. And Julio always had this um, idea that if we wanted to make it work, we had to uh, work as hard as string quartets. You know, the string quartet repertoire, so much larger, so in a way much more glorious, and it just much more intricate. and. You don't have the piano to fall back on or hide. And just by dint of this, um, you know, when we entered competitions, I think most piano trios, you know, depend on, you know, flashiness and um, soloistic tendencies. And it can really work. uh, And you can't do that in string quartet. But he said, you know, if we really wanted to compare ourselves to a string quartet, we ought to put in the kind of effort and thoughtfulness that it would take To have a successful string quartet, and we did approach our piano trio like this. So we worked for a few years like this, and with great success. uh, We did a few competitions, and we were were recognized uh, almost every single time. And we were starting to make a career out of it, and you know, starting to make respectable seasons where we were asked to, uh, we were re-engaged to go back on serious series. And I thought, okay, this is, this is like a viable path for me. It's not um, glamorous in any way, you know. You, sometimes you, you might have to travel to a, a town that you might not want to go to and then stay in a hotel that's not so fancy. But at least I'm with my buddies, you know. And I did a little bit of the solo thing uh, at the same time. And I found that incredibly tiring and uh nerve-wracking you didn't have the camaraderie with anybody because you, you go somewhere and then you have to prove yourself by yourself and i found that quite i think those who choose that as a path first of all like the level of playing and just the amount of notes that they have in their head and in their fingers i just find that outstanding um I didn't ever think that was going to be my path. I thought I was going to be. a. But you were doing it. I was doing it somewhat. um, I thought my career was going to be chamber musician and, you know, being asked to play freelance with people that I respect and then occasionally play, play, uh, solos, but I can't imagine playing 20, 30 concertos a year or, uh, yeah, it's just I think the most I ever did in one season was six different concertos, you know, lined up with all my other stuff and that was exhausting because I'm not doing um, six different concertos, let alone 15 different concertos every year. And it's just to bring each one to a level where you feel really comfortable and you might only play it once in a season where you're not playing it over and over. I just thought that's a really grinding and difficult life. With the piano trio, I felt like, wow, this is just, I'm getting to touch some of the greatest music ever written. Schubert piano trios, Beethoven archduke trio, Ravel piano trio. And there was something about uh, this repertoire for the audience member. If, If it was played right with the right piano in the right space, and if things went well, I think it can be a really overwhelming and intimate personal experience. And I really loved that. I really love that, and that's why chamber music plays a big role in my life. Uh, I think I would be devastated if I was only doing just orchestra, or I would be be pretty devastated if I was doing just chamber music, too, personally, because um, it goes the other way, too, because I'm able to bring my experiences from playing in a huge symphonic ensemble um, to different experiences, too. So I, I think that versatility is ultimately what I was aiming for near the end.
1: Uh, before I got the job but when you got the job at the Montreal Symphony correct me if I'm wrong but it wasn't like you were seeking that job it kind of came to you because of your work with your solo work it was it not
0: yeah so it's actually it was quite fortuitous there's a Montreal Symphony competition I think it's every three years it's like a national competition and there's also an international competition which you know, huge prizes, and they always end up choosing fantastic soloists. But something about this national competition, they really support their winners. And uh, basically, anybody who has a notable career in Canada and and is Canadian has touched this competition. And even if they hadn't won, they had done really well in the competition and were seen. And so this competition uh, has launched the careers of many people, including myself. And when I was doing this competition, just a few weeks prior to uh, the first round, I was talking to my pianist, Julio, and he had said, What's your, what are you going to play? You know, and I told him each round what I was going to play. And the final round was, I had planned to play the Sibelius Concerto, which I'd done a few times with orchestra, you know, been learning over the years. And it's a very standard competition work. And he said, you know, I I just feel like that will be fine, but you may not stand out, probably not going to stand out. And you should play the piece that you played with the Juilliard Orchestra last year. There was a competition where at Juilliard, they have one or two violin competitions a year where they choose the piece and everyone is playing that piece, everyone who enters that competition. And um, the year prior to that, uh, I played uh, the Elgar Violin Concerto, which is a very unusual work, super long, uh, very gnarly. Uh, it's like a gar- gargantuan work. And I dove right into that. I just immediately connected with that piece. And it just went really well when I played it with the Juilliard Orchestra. And he said, you know, how much effort would to take to bring it back and play that piece? Because if you happen to make it to the finals and if you happen to win... To get to play this with the orchestra would be amazing because how many times do they play Sibelius? Probably once every 15 months. And when I won the competition, and then as part of the prize, I got to play the Elgar Concerto, uh, members of the orchestra said, I've never played this piece before. You know, I heard recordings of Menuhin or Nigel Kennedy playing this, but it's fun that I got to play it. And I think the level of attention from the musicians just because of the fact that this was a piece that they had to practice. They can just like show up and, you know, play the piece that they had just played last year. You know, uh, there was just a little bit more heightened awareness of what was happening. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the best violinist who's ever won this competition. I just think Julio was right. This is a piece that made me stand out And uh, a few months after my concerts with them, uh, I received a call from the symphony. uh, And I guess the competition organizer, her name was Marianne uh, Perron. She's now uh, head of artistic operations at the orchestra. And the conductor who conducted that concert, Jean-François Rivet, and then a few musicians suggested uh, to Nagano, uh, Ken Nagano, the music director at the time, that they give me a shot um and i was over the moon you know i had done a little bit of guesting as uh, a, a guest concert like invited guest concert master for uh, another orchestra and it was way less comfortable than going to montreal where i didn't know any more but i knew more people and they knew that i had played that elgar elgar so they were Extremely welcoming, and it was an immediate fit. Uh, just felt really great. And Nagano asked me to come back, finish the season, do a recording with them, play an audition. And within a few months, like I was starting my trial period as one of the concertmasters. At that time, there was going to be two concertmasters, and that was the case until last year. And uh, Richard Roberts, my, my partner, uh, the other concertmaster, who I rotated with, he retired last year. So that was another reason why um, it felt really comfortable. It wasn't a full-time job right away. Uh, I had time to learn the music. I had opportunities on the rare occasion where we would play together where I could watch him lead. Uh, I could see how he handled things and then fit my personality into, you know, some some uh, techniques and strategies he used. Yeah, so it was due to the solo work at first, uh, but then I don't think anyone remembers that concert anymore except for me. I think everyone's just like, okay, it's just old hat. Andrew's here now, and he's here to stay for, you know, foreseeable future.
1: Um, Tell me what, I asked Jonathan this when I interviewed him, but tell me what is the role of the concertmaster? Describe to me how you see that role to be.
0: Um, Well, Jonathan and I are both like huge Hockey fans, so I I think the best analogy that I've used is um, like if you think of orchestra as like the team, and the coach is the conductor. He's the one who's deciding deciding the direction of the orchestra or the team. Uh, I would say the role of concertmaster is the, the captain. So you might take the ceremonial puck drop. So I. I tune the orchestra, so everyone sees Jonathan and I and other concertmasters do this. It's just like an old European tradition. And we get called upon to you know, be the face of the orchestra most of the time. I mean, others are doing it a lot as well. Um, uh, we're there representing the orchestra in a civic manner. Sometimes you serve as a liaison to uh, the conductors, so if there's a guest conductor, if he or she has certain wishes, and sometimes it's quicker for me to serve as a conduit, uh, or the administration, they obviously have a musician's committee and an artistic committee, but then sometimes they have to go through me for some artistic matters, and sometimes some personnel matters. Uh, matters. Um, I'm also the leader of the first violin sections, and a lot of the decisions that's that are taken uh, by the person who sits in my chair flow down into the other sections. So if I decide, okay, this pivotal moment, we're going to do this bow direction, like it or not, everyone basically has to do it. And there are exceptions where, um, you know, it's, it's a very hierarchical system. And it's mostly due to the fact that there's just so little time to do anything. And so, uh, this person is designated to make that decision. And people just have to hope that my mind is in the right place or I'm doing it for the right reasons. And I I hope that it is. I also uh, sometimes serve as like a a focal point and it's not always me. Uh, There are other people that are tasked with this, but sometimes if there's a moment of, oh, where are we going to play this next moment and the conductor is uh, busy with taking care of, you know, the flow of a phrase or, you know, a balance thing in concert. I think I can feel like the heat uh, directed towards me. It's like, oh, where is he going to decide to interpret where that conductor wants this next uh, moment to occur. And sometimes I have to just, even though I'm not a huge person, uh, make sure I'm a bigger person and make sure I'm demonstrative and show where that happens. And, there have been times where I realized, whoa, I, not only did I do that wrong uh, or, or interpret it the wrong way, me being too demonstrative here made it worse, you know, because the focal point shouldn't have been me. So just being able to uh, decide how big I'm going to be in that chair uh, comes with experience. It's not always me, 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 me all the time. Um, it's, you know, being able to judge how important my role is. Uh, But there is a default where eyes turn towards the concertmaster. And for that matter, you know, other uh, section leaders as well. It just happens to be this is the way
1: it's set up. Can you talk about the bowing, like the importance of the bow? And and you said you dictate or you kind of dictate how the bowing is done in your section. Tell me about the importance of bow for people who have no idea what that really means.
0: Yeah, well, if if you want to sing something, you know, you can sing it in a variety of ways, but if you want to sing it in character, you might use uh, different consonants or vowels to enunciate the start of a note. And you might even put an M at the end of a note, like if you want to go yadaram or ta or pa or that sort of thing. And where you are in the bow, so lower in the bow or at the tip, uh, you can get a lot of uh, cohesion from a lot of people very quickly if people can see where I'm doing it. Or even there are things that are just understood. There's a symbol for what's called a down bow, and where I start from the lower part of the bow and then go to the upper part of the bow. That's the very basic tenet of that. And then the up bow, it looks like a V, and that's where I go from the tip to the frog or any length bow but that's the direction and there's this natural kind of uh, if you're not um, counterbalancing this with other techniques the down bow usually has an exhalation feeling that goes yeah down and then the up bow goes <gasps> and of course not everything goes yeah <gasps> <laughs> that's a that bad technique but I mean that's kind of the the, the natural feeling of it so you want to make sure that the phrase, if it's like a, uh, a longer phrase, you want to make sure the bowing fits what uh, you think the music is going to want to be. And there have been times where I'll decide like a whole slew of bowings and then I, there's quite a bit of change changes that occur in rehearsals where I realize, oh, the conductor wants this articulation. He wants, instead of um, a very pointed attack, he wants something that's a little bit more matted or felty. So then I decide, okay, this the bow direction might be correct. Like we might be starting on an up bow, but where I am going to be in the bow, then we decide, okay, here we're going to play it three quarters of the way up or right at the tip or right in the middle or that sort of thing. That sort of thing, um, the greatest orchestras have a lot of unanimity and there's a clarity about, okay, at the very least, we're all going to do it the same way. We're going to do it the same way. And if it's going to be a success, we're going to do it together. And if it's going to be a failure, at least we're going to do it together. Because it's you know there's nothing um... there's nothing uh, more disappointing when the music is about it, when it's supposed to be about cohesion and um, togetherness, when it's like a little bit random. There are moments where there should be like soloistic uh, personalities that come out, but usually the first violin section needs to play together as a unit, the second violin as a unit in each section. Uh, sometimes we have to play t- together with other teams. Um, and sometimes there's a battle on stage. You know, there's like a musical battle where things have to pop out of the texture. And then making sure it's well calibrated. And it all has to do with uh, it starts from the boat. And then, of course, you get into other nuances like um, uh, vibrato and the type of color that you might want to use. And it just goes on and on. and. I feel like the greatest orchestras are able to pick up on these decisions very quickly in the process, so that you can get to other things.
1: Uh, is it easy for you to determine what the bowing should be when you when you look at a piece that you've never played before?
0: I would I'm I i would not say it's easy. I would say that everyone has their own process. You know, I talk to other concert masters, and you know, by and large, we all kind of do it the same way. You know, Jonathan said to me, he's like he realized that he's much more efficient when he has his violin in front of him. And then he tries something because sometimes things in theory don't work so well in the wild. Uh, I have done Boeing's on, on plane rides or sometimes without my instrument, but he's right. It does work better when you are, um, in front of your instrument, listening to recordings helps, you know, on some occasions you watch videos and see how the other orchestras interpret the music. Um, it's also important, I realized, to be not dogmatic. Uh, you, you have, you know, go-to uh, techniques and maneuvers that you know are going to work. But then, if a conductor wants something that I didn't envision, I have to be able to to pivot quickly, even if I disagree. You know, my my job isn't there to be at odds with anybody. It's there to facilitate, you know, cohesion and um, teamwork. So uh, having the humility to just accept that the decision that I made you know let's say three months ago bowing this the symphony it's not working you know I think that's important and not to get stuck into a groove and just being open to new ideas and I feel like I'm pretty good at that at being able to be to see that the choices I made might not have worked in in a certain context
1: Um, as a concept master How involved are you in the planning of the program or the pieces that the orchestra plays? Do you have any say in that or?
0: I have probably, there are some concert masters out there that do a lot of that and are quite involved and are quite good at it. There are some concert masters that are really good at public speaking and do a lot of that. There are some concert masters that are very good at, you know, other elements of the job playing solos and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not so involved in the uh, overall pro- uh, programming. Sometimes they come to me about uh, putting together smaller projects, you know chamber music projects, some, sometimes conductorless concerts. Obviously, I have a say in what solos I get to play. Um, every year, by and large, I get to play like a, a concerto and you know they're never going to try to make me play something that I can't play or I don't want to play. So, but I'm quickly running out, you know, I was counting over 15 years. I probably played like 30 concertos, you know, in all types of settings. And, you know, that's a lot of different pieces. And I don't think anyone wants me to hear, wants me to play stuff that I don't know so well. So it's it takes careful planning and uh, making sure that I'm ready to play when push comes to shove. Um, but to answer your question, no, um, that job is... Uh, the programming director's job in tandem with the music director as they kind of carve out the identity of the orchestra over a period of time. And there's like a theme each season, each season and there's like an overarching um, kind of personality that they want to superimpose on the orchestra. And that's, that's fun to be part of some kind of trajectory.
1: So tell me, see, you're in a string quartet. You play chamber music with other people you're a concertmaster for a major symphony and you probably still do some solo work or guest soloist for other orchestras. Does your approach to those different roles on the violin differ greatly from being a string quartet member to a soloist to being a concertmaster?
0: Yeah. um, Well, first of all, the sound has to change. You know, I'm playing in When I'm playing chamber music, I rarely play in a hall that's as large as the Montreal Symphony Hall. Um, And something about standing up and playing a solo is different than playing a solo when I'm sitting in my chair and then randomly have to play like a 20-second solo, 20 minutes into a large work. So the playing itself is different, but also, you know, uh, the onus is different. You know, we're always a little bit beholden when I'm playing in my section, to what um, the conductor wants. And usually he or she will, you know, uh, communicate their vision. And, and our, I always feel like our job is to make that thing work. And of course, it's not always going to be a marriage of like minds. It's going to be um, how are we going to function? And if I view being a soloist, you know, like the amount of time it takes to to prepare a solo work, by and large, most conductors allow the soloist to kind of dictate the flow of the piece and the style and the the kind of the, the um, atmosphere of the work. So there's much more pressure on the soloist to um, impose the personality. And when it comes to the string quartet, you know, now that this is pure negotiation, you know, we're all equals and... Um, it's funny my quartet started off as four principal chair um symphonic musicians you know from different orchestras and we're all used to getting our own way and this has been like a a great exercise in uh humility and acceptance because of course all those other guys and now sharon has joined our quartet and she she's a real great uh malleable peacemaker (laughs) and but you know we everyone has great ideas and I I have the utmost respect for everybody. Um, So it is um, about compromise, a musical compromise where you accept someone's ideas. It's like a dinner party where someone might have a differing view about what's going on in the world and, but you're not going to get up and leave. Hopefully not. You're going to share your ideas and then meld them together and hopefully reach a place of understanding or, you know, take joy in the fact that there is like this tension and there is uh, there's a lot of tension in music, you know, where there's you build up this kind of um, dissonance, and then that release can be absolutely exhilarating. And sometimes when the release doesn't happen, you feel like, okay, we'll get it the next time.
1: <laughs> the the thing that really surprises me about what you do, um, in in all aspects of what you do, I believe, whether you're with the orchestra or with or with the string quartet. It's not like you have a lot of rehearsal time and it's not like you're spending months and months rehearsing on any given thing. Right. Like it's you're executing at a very high level with minimal rehearsal. Is that not? Is that correct to say?
0: Yeah. And in fact, this there's been this phenomenon, like maybe our perception has changed a little but I don't think it's changed that much where I've spoken to many musicians, I'm I'm sure. Other musicians have mentioned this to you coming out of the pandemic that there was like this period of inactivity or large gaps between this a lot of intermittent work. So we had a lot of time to fixate on the next thing, but now it's always the next thing is in a few days and it's something completely different. And uh, we all said coming out of the pandemic, especially last year, wow, it just feels a little bit more um, chaotic. It just feels like, We're running from one thing to the next maybe our bodies got used to like this yeah it's inertia maybe
1: there was like this period of stasis
0: i don't know um i mean does it seem more
1: busier than it was before the pandemic or is it just because you're used to that downtime i think there's a little
0: bit of that i think everyone's getting older too and then the stuff that we accepted when we were younger like putting our bodies through you know, red-eye flight, and then go to two rehearsals after playing, after a plane ride, but after playing a concert in, like, a different time zone, that just feels harder. It just feels harder, and um, just the way this works, uh, it's also exhilarating, you know, sometimes some of the most exciting performances I've ever been a part of have been both, wow, major planning, and just beautiful execution because of confidence and everyone just feels like, okay, this is what we're going to do from, you know, the timing of how everything's going to roll out to what we're saying on stage. You know, there's like, we left nothing to chance and that just worked. And then on the other hand, some of the other really uh, fulfilling experiences I've been a part of, were, you know, (laughs) see what's going to happen. And then we're just uh, there's a heightened sense of awareness and attention and then somehow it just worked and being a part of both of those things can be really satisfying as a musician so I have to say I really liked the time the downtime where you know I could really get into certain works during the pandemic but I think that if I had to choose the lots of stuff all the time is what keeps this fresh and interesting you know May, there might be too much pressure if you only have one concert every three months where you everything is riding on like this one particular performance, but if you have like a nice balance of lots of stuff to do and enough time to practice, enough time to rest, and you just feel like, yeah, I'm in shape. I'm in shape, and I'm just used to to performing and I can I feel good about performing and I don't have to wait two, three weeks to perform, yeah, I think that's that's nice too.
1: You know, with the Montreal Symphony, I have no idea what kind of schedule you keep. In the next month, how many gigs will you be doing?
0: Well, uh, we started, we have a summer season and we worked very hard. Um, and then there was, I don't know, four sets of concerts in September. So two or three shows a week, new program. Well, we just played a concert last night, playing one tomorrow. And my next thing with the orchestra is in 10 days where I'm playing Beethoven Violin Concerto with our orchestra and uh, the, the music director, Raphael Tayari. And I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself because that is like the you know, Mount Olympus <laughs> of, of violin concertos. So this is my one for the year. And you know, I have played it with other orchestras in different seasons. And I'll be playing it with another orchestra in the, in about the week before, and I'll be Great chance to play it again. It does feel like nonstop, and especially because the periods where it's not filled in in my calendar with, you know, rehearsals where I have to be somewhere with somebody, I'm usually practicing or I'm teaching. You know, I fill in these cracks with um, my students at Miguel and um, occasionally I'll see people who are outside of my studio. People come in for lessons, and that can quickly fill up my day, and it's very enriching, but ex- extremely exhausting. Yesterday, we had a dress rehearsal finished at 12.30, and then I taught from 1.30 till 5.30, and the concert was at 7.30. And I saw another faculty member who plays flute in the orchestra, piccolo and flute. And we just looked at each other in the bathroom, and we just rolled our eyes, what are we doing? We didn't get to go home. Didn't like, we, And then after seeing him in the bathroom, I went to the food court underneath the hall the montreal studio, and i saw brian the cellist of my quartet and we were just eating food court food and we, just like, we were joking that we were living the life you know <laughs> well, well yeah so that that's a real day
1: but when we when we when i saw you in the summer we had a short chat and we were talking about life balances and how difficult it was and i think summer's is also difficult because i think you do a lot more festivals and stuff but how do you find that? How do you do that balance?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say this summer was particularly um, strenuous and like a lot of traveling and traveling, <laughs> this is not in my imagination, but it's gotten harder, you know, like with cancellations and, you know, knowing what's possible then the next year you'll be like, well, I have been able to do this where I had a concert and then I'd fly it somewhere overnight and then, I'm somewhere else the next day playing something else. I'll just do that again. I've done it before, so it's fine. And So on top of my orchestra work, I counted. I had nine different festivals over the course of three months wow. and each lasting at least a week. So uh, like on the road or working in Montreal the whole summer. And my week off was last week. Uh, my summer was filled. And that's been a source of consternation for for family time for sure Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not unique there's a lot of uh, performing musicians that bring their family along and they're able to to have some semblance of normalcy because this is our life and I will always remember when James Ennis came and soloed with us for those who don't know he is the preeminent uh, violinist Uh, I wouldn't even say Canadian violinist he's just one of the world's best violinists and he just happens to be coming from Brandon, Manitoba And he solos with all the great orchestras and he was soloing us with us this one week. And that rehearsal ended at 1230. And then he had another concert that he was preparing for with some musicians in the orchestra. And we rehearsed with him till, let's say, I don't know, 2.15, 3 o'clock. And uh, then he said to me, do you want to just eat something before the concert? And I said, "Uh, "Okay." (laughs) And we sat at this restaurant and had a burger sitting outside, and I was getting nervous for him because his concert was at 7.30 or 8. And by about 4 o'clock, I said, well, you know, let you let you go, man. You you, you got to go rest because I know I would not be doing what you're doing. I would be, you know, pacing around in my room, practicing frantically. And he said, you know, Andrew, this is my life. And I long ago realized that uh, if I can't have some kind of routine or happiness in, in feeling relaxed if I can't enjoy my time eating a burger with a friend or, or, you know, spending some time outside, if I'm just going to go nuts. Yeah. that's it's not the life I want to live. And first of all, he doesn't really need to go nuts. He just like, it comes very naturally to him, <laughs> you know, he's, he's blessed. But um, that, that was good for me to, to remember, you know, there, this doesn't have to be all strife and all um, running around. It can be, it can, be quite joyful and you know i've never seen him stressed out so that's that's a nice model to live by
1: at this stage of your career do you have goals
0: yeah i i had more i would say different clearer aspirations when i was younger but they they weren't grounded in reality or or art making really it was just like oh i want to Play this concert, or play with these people, or whatever Uh, things that ultimately, you know, it's not unique. Everyone thinks this way. You know, it's always fun to have new experiences and to be recognized. But I would say, my uh, my focus is making sure that I'm saying something with my playing all the time. And part of realizing that has been uh, teaching and you know, seeing like my grade students, you know, mm. surpass the next step and just making sure um, what they're doing is meaningful and they're saying stuff that people want to listen to. And sometimes we can get bogged down in the, the craft or the minutiae and just feel like, oh, I'm just a violinist rather than I'm an art maker. You know, I'm, I'm making music for people. I have to, I have to be convincing. So not only do I have to focus on the the technique and the the discipline, but I have to commit to uh, convincing people of whatever musical argument or or statement. And, you know, as I get into this next phase of my career, I've always considered myself as the young guy. I'm not the young guy anymore. I'm turning 40 this year, and, you know, like it's... I can't believe that I've been in the orchestra for this long. I need to make sure that I stay in shape and I continue growing and I don't get stuck in... um, like, uh, in certain ways, because things are evolving, the, the aesthetic has changed, you know, the what people wanted to hear before is slowly changing, and I need to make sure I'm, I'm with it, I'm, and I'm developing, you know, it's, that's important, and that's ultimately going to be the most fulfilling thing, uh, and the concerts will come, and I'm lucky to have the concerts that I'm offered all the time, you know, I could... Some some of my most favorite memories, uh, musically, have been with the Montreal Symphony, or with the New Orford String Quartet, or playing with my pianist, Mm -hmm. you know, just being able to get to the next level, and the the thing is, nobody tells you this, uh, you get to the next level, and your next concert doesn't necessarily start at that level, you have to, you can't uh, take it for granted, there's no new default, you know, you have to put in the same kind of effort each time, which is which is fun. You know, I, I think this wouldn't be fun if it was easy.
1: But okay, so when you say the next level to get to that next level to improve, like when when I just turned on the camera, you are already rehearsing. And I presume you rehearse you rehearse many hours a day. Is that the way to get to the next level?
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to put in the requisite number of hours. Uh, some people require less hours. Uh, but some, probably those people other than having physical gifts are just, uh, thoughtful all the time. And sometimes, you know, if, especially if you're just drilling something over and over again, because you're obsessed with not wanting to mis- make a mistake, you can just kind of turn off your brain a little bit and just go through of motions. There have been periods where, you know, I'm a huge avid Edmonton Oilers fan, you know, and during playoffs it's really hard not to watch games but then i have to balance well i got to practice so you know there have been times where you know the tv's on or a computers on and i'm streaming a game and you know i, I can be forgiven because playoffs laughs last but you know a few weeks or hopefully a few months um the worst that i ever did <laughs> i put a mute on my violin because i needed to hear the game <laughs> And I was playing really softly, so I was just moving my fingers. But you can cut that out. You can cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's
1: the good stuff. Yeah. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. I I had a chance to work with you during the pandemic and um, for the Toronto Summer Music Festival. And I got to edit one of your beautiful pieces that um, was stunning
0: you did ah. such a great job well thank you um, you did such a wonderful job
1: no that was I, it was just such a beautiful piece to to edit and uh, unusual for me to edit a piece that's just solo violin on its own yeah um but yeah. I've, I've enjoyed watching you play a, a few times since then at that festival and uh thank you so much for doing this, this a, i've always wanted to s- sit down talk to you and i really appreciate you giving me this opportunity
0: thank you so much for having me and uh yeah i can't wait to All listen right. to it you take care Take care.